Welcome to Trafe. It's our bar mitzvah podcast. Um, what's what's up, Sam? I've seen club. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, you, you get older, you start reconsidering life a little bit. What are, you, what are you getting at? The podcast turned 13 today. Oh, yeah. It's our bar mitzvah episode. I mean, retrospect, retroactively because we recorded it a week before we released it. But when it's released, it's going to be our 13th episode. And uh, yeah, you just you just think about getting old. So what's occurring to you? David, I kind of thought we were going to make a big deal of this turning 13 thing, but... Wait, why'd you think that? Well, bar mitzvah, we're a Jewish podcast. It was going to be a thing. Yeah, but, we, but we never talked about it before today yeah no i know i but there was a part of me that thought that we should have talked about it and should have planned something oh maybe yeah do you, well, want, to, do you want to do something i don't know i mean we're here now um what do you want to do uh i don't know i think i think that something that might be apropos of such an event is uh, a reflection from you on on your bar mitzvah i have a feel like that's not what the listeners want all right well if we envision the listeners being here and saying that is what they want Okay, um, so Orthodox bar mitzvahs are not really for the kids; they're mostly for the adults. So it's a lot, you know a lot of people wearing fancy clothes and you know sitting at tables and speeches. So my bar mitzvah, we sat at tables and there were speeches and we had uh, I think sandwiches and French fries and things like that. Did you give a speech? I did. Do you remember what it was about? Something about the parsha. Yeah. No. Anyway, what about you? For folks who listen and know me, I'm not the best with memory, but. I'm trying to think. Do you not remember? No, no, no. I remember it, but I'm trying to remember like stat, like interesting anecdotal pieces here. One of the speeches that I gave revolved around this research I did with the Holocaust Center in Montreal that kind of did some background research into some relative I had who died in the Holocaust. But that's not very entertaining. Well, yeah, fascinating stuff. This is why I tune into Trafe every second week for slow moving reminiscences of each of our bar mitzvahs. Um, we do have a good show though today. It's true. Yeah, it's a good one. We are once again going to be talking about intersectionality and Tablet Magazine. Yeah, we spoke with Elon Benatar, who is a part of the Mizrahi Caucus of Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, about a recent article that came out in Tablet about Mizrahi Jews. We also talked with an organizer from Jewish Voice for Peace in New York about the New York Times action that they undertook last week. And if anyone is on the Jewish internet, you will have come across it, particularly the editor of the Jewish Daily Forwards very comical response to their parody New York Times. Or, and we also have our second interview with Dave Zirin, but the first interview that we were able to record. Oh, uh, yeah, I forgot to press record on the first one that we did months and months ago. But Dave Zirin was kind enough to come back, and he's the sports editor at The Nation magazine and the host of Edge of Sports podcast. And we talked about the David Blatt firing, which David knew a lot about. I, I, I don't really keep up on these things. <laughs> um, and this is your episode of Trey for the 8th of Adar 5776. So last week on the show, we talked a bit about Tablet Magazine, explained a bit about what uh, this media organization is, what they're doing, what they're prioritizing. And uh, we just wanted to talk a bit about an article that we noticed that came out a few weeks ago. Yeah, so we've already talked about how the institutional Jewish community misrepresents and misunderstands the intersectional framework. 
but this article, which came out at the end of January, was a little bit different. Yeah, we haven't really talked as much about the efforts of the institutional Jewish community to co-opt this language in a lot of different examples, but this is actually a really good example. The Tablet Magazine article, An Intersectional Failure, How Both Israel's Backers and Critics Write Mizrahi Jews Out of the Story. And one of the things that stood out for me in this article was the fact that there were a lot of arguments made that I agreed with. But we didn't just want to have this conversation between the two of us, so we got on the phone with someone who could talk about this a little more. Uh, so Ilan Benatar is a graduate student and part-time Hebrew teacher based in New York City who studies the intellectual history of Middle Eastern and North African juries during the 19th and 20th century. Uh, he's also an activist involved with the Mizrahi Caucus of Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. So the primary reason why we have you on is to talk about the tablet piece that came out at the end of January called An Intersectional Failure how both Israel's backers and critics write Mizrahi Jews out of the story. I was wondering if you could start by just telling me your initial thoughts. Sure. Um, the briefest synopsis possible of my thoughts on the piece is that it tries to co-opt progressive language by discussing intersectionality and discussing the erasure of Mizrahim, and it tries to use intersectionality as a rhetorical tool with which to bash anti-Zionist groups over the head by saying that they fail to engage in a truly intersectional analysis. And if they did, and this is the, the most confusing part of the article, but also the most central part of the argument, it's basically saying that if organizations like BDS did engage in a truly intersectional analysis, then they would obviously acknowledge, adopt, or at least engage with right-wing Zionist positions. Yeah, because reading the article, it actually had a lot of good points, I thought, built into it about the erasures mm -hmm. of Mizrahi identity, but then tying it to the need to support Israel at the end was such a strange conclusion. There was a quote that said, most non-Ashkenazi Jews in the world live in Israel, and so a boycott of Israel functionally acts to exclude most Jews of color from global conversations. Like, what do you make of that right. conclusion? In my opinion, what these authors are doing in this piece is really a sort of a Mizrahi reflection of pinkwashing, which has been discussed in past episodes of this podcast, because basically what they're trying to do is co-opt the Mizrahi narrative, which is supposedly you know, a singular thing, in order to say that these different segments of the left, the BDS movement in particular, is failing to be truly intersectional, to be truly progressive in the same way that Zionists are. And so what it really is, is Mizrahi washing, trying to use the Mizrahi narrative for manifestly reactionary purposes. It also fails to acknowledge that the BDS movement explicitly does not target individuals, targets institutions. So on a whole number of levels, that sentence that you pointed out is, is ludicrous. You know, it, it, it speaks in the name of arguing against and pointing out the erasure of the Mizrahim, but actually it's engaging in just the same thing. I was also wondering, the co-author of the article, um, who is the mm -hmm. program director at Jews Indigenous to the Middle East and North Africa, it seemed like the purpose of that organization was actually to push this narrative that to be in solidarity with Mizrahi Jews, one ought to come to a Zionist conclusion. Do you see that push coming from other directions besides this recent spate of intersectionality articles in the Jewish press? 
Yes, this has been a topic that has been really prominent among Zionist circles over the past couple of years. And I think it's a byproduct of Zionist organizations realizing that they are losing this international debate and that Israel is increasingly appearing as a white colonial imposition in the Middle East, which the article addresses explicitly. So in recognizing that, what these organizations are trying to do is co-opt the Mizrahi narrative into basically another narrative which supposedly supports the Zionist narrative. In terms of Jimenez's push to classify Mizrahim as refugees, A, there's the fact that trying to classify Jews from Arab countries as refugees ignores the fact that they weren't all forced out, that some came of their own volition. B, it ignores the fact that not all Jews from Arab countries went to Israel. So what standing does Israel actually have to adjudicate on their behalf? And B, because, as I mentioned before, this claim has been used since the 50s to try to offset the claims of Palestinian refugees. So it's trying to connect these two issues, saying that they're, they're inseparable as a way to, to avoid explicitly addressing Palestinian claims for restitution and or return. So another thing I noticed in the article is that they said that none of the conversation, like none of the articles published that were talking about intersectionality actually talked at all about erasure of Mizrahi identity. And it made me think about, because we spoke with Karen Sofer Sharon, who I know is also part of the Jews for Racial and Economic Justice Mizrahi Caucus. Mm -hmm. And we spoke to her about an article that she had written in Tikkun Daily. And it just struck me that in making that statement, they're actually completely ignoring the work that she produced that was actually talking about this issue from a much different perspective. Can you, can you talk a bit about what you guys are working on over at the, the caucus and maybe a bit about how you kind of view that that conclusion? Sure. The way that the authors seem to ignore pieces like Karen's completely follows the logic of their piece because, again, what they're trying to say that that to, that to be Mizrahi is to be Zionist, a movement that is historically Ashkenazi, which has historically been dominated by Ashkenazim, and which has gone to great lengths to obscure Mizrahi history and to de-Arabize Mizrahi Jews. So obviously a piece like Karen's, which doesn't fit very well into that mainstream Zionist narrative, would obviously they would obviously have to ignore it. But basically what we're trying to do at the Mizrahi Caucus in JFRED is... Uh, build a community, first of all, of like-minded Mizrahi activists who feel as though they want to be part of social justice efforts within the American Jewish community, but they also feel as though many of those organizations sort of premise themselves on a narrative that is manifestly Ashkenazi and which perpetuates the, the Ashkenazi centricity of American Jewry. And basically, what Karen was trying to say is that um, one of the things she was trying to say is that in order to understand how Jews are complicit in that sort of anti-Arab racism, we need to examine how it exists within our community. And I think something that brings a lot of us together in the Mizrahi Caucus is that we've all experienced things which have taught us, have suggested to us that in many ways, 
our heritage, our narratives, the traditions that we've been taught don't really fit in with the mainstream, that we are that we're different in some way, A, in that we're Mizrahim, and B, of course, in that we are leftists. Uh, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Pick up the Jewish daily forward. Unfortunately, it ain't the Friar Arbitashtami. It's time for Shkayach. Before we go to the critically acclaimed Shkoyach segment, I think we should just take a pause and uh, give ourselves a Shkoyach for making it to uh, the Bar Mitzvah episode. Oh, yeah. So a big Shkoyach, more importantly, to all the folks who have made this show possible. Maybe this is getting a little over the top, but I think that folks who have been around and helped us in in a variety of ways, uh, thank you so much. Thanks to CKT. Thanks to Jew School. Thanks to everyone we thank already at the end of the show. Yeah, thank, yes. End of show people, thank you. Uh, who else should we thank, Sam? I just think we should leave it open so that if we do not include someone, they will not feel bad. Now that we've made our way through this uh, bar mitzvah thank you speech moment, back to regular programming. So what's your shkoyach? So my shkoyach for the week is going to a group of liberal Jews. And I have to say that it's a tentative shkoyach because I'm not quite sure where this is going. Uh, <laughs> One sec, before we go any further, I think it's interesting how Shkoyach has progressed, whereby we're now giving like these not sure who we're giving it to, kind of time-sensitive Shkoyachs. Well, I'd say this is a traditional Shkoyach, it's very clear-cut, but I'm, as I often do, giving myself the ability to revoke it. Okay, noted. Depending on how things play out here. All but right, so how are things going to play out? So it's your usual suspects of liberal Jewish Canadian scene. You have Bernie Farber. Uh, you have Andrew Cohen, you have Mira Sukhroff. A bunch of names have signed this open letter that was published recently in the Canadian Jewish News. Was it in print or um, are you are you reading this online? Well, it was probably in print. I, I don't get like, but do you still get the print copy? That's my right. mom, my mom gets it. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't, I don't get the print one anymore. So okay. I saw it online. It was, it was on the, I think it was a week ago they put it up there. Mm -hmm. And it was a letter that was saying that they perceive the trend of the institutional Jewish community as being one away from work around social justice and one that they described as focusing on the much narrow agenda of Israel advocacy. And they oh, want to wow. see that reversed. Huh. They want to encourage and participate in something resembling the U.S.-based Jewish Social Justice Roundtable. Do they define that in the in the in in this letter? Like, what does that roundtable mean? It's kind of like a, a social justice Canadian Jewish Congress, uh, 52 organizations get together and they collaborate. They talk about the work they're doing different from the Congress. It, you know, wouldn't be able to make decisions about the direction of the institutional Jewish community. But I think in the wake of the Canadian Jewish Congress no longer being here, yeah. they're trying to fill the gap with something that is very specifically focused on the social justice work that no longer exists in the institutional Jewish community. Wait, so in principle, this doesn't sound terrible. Is there a catch? Well, I, I want to be really excited about it, and part of me is, but I also have some suspicions because of the recent push in the institutional Jewish community to embrace the language of social justice, to start building coalitions around social justice as a way of normalizing Zionism, particularly by liberal Zionists. And I think this could easily potentially fall into that category. I don't want to say that it is. I, I, I really hope that it's not. And that's why I'm giving it a shkoyach. I, I, I'm genuinely excited about it. But I you know, also think it's possible it might unfortunately fall into that territory. 
that is a real possibility, but I have to say I, I admire your optimism on this front. Um, so we can look through the list. Yeah, let's bring it up here. But the name on it that I wanted to bring up was Karen Mox, who we, we mentioned on a previous uh. show. She worked for B'nai B'rith's human rights organization, and, and she also is a part of J-Space, which is the liberal Zionist group in Canada that's kind of equivalent to J-Street in the United States. And she's a part of this new effort on Canadian campuses trying to inject a more social justice version of Zionism. And, and the inclusion of her name here, I think, raised those flags of suspicion for me. Um, but again, still trying to stay hopeful. I think we should end on a note where you are saying that you're hopeful. Any, any of these other names ringing any bells for you, Sam? I mean, no one that we haven't discussed on the show. Like, there's no one that really stands out. Yeah. It's the usual suspects. <laughs> but what's uh, what's your square for the week? Well, so I'm going to take your, your optimism and go with an anti-square. Oh, I think it's your first anti-square. It might be my first. Um, David, I'm going to try and paint a picture for you. Okay. You're maybe in grade four or grade five. You're at a Jewish day school. And there's a monotony of what you eat every day for lunch. I've been in this picture before. Yeah, definitely. So it's like a tuna sandwich. Homemade uh, vegan pizza because I'm allergic to dairy and it's pizza day. (laughs) It's mostly tofu cream cheese and tofu blended together as a topping. I did not experience that. Although one of the weirder things that I had was um, cream cheese and olives on Montreal bagels. That sounds pretty legit. It It was good, but people around me thought it was weird. Anyways, the point of the story is, is that there's there's a there's the grind of of the same lunch every day, and then there's that one day every week or every month, you know, and you are just really excited for it. What what is that day? That day involves a certain break in the routine. Is it pizza day? It's pizza day, David. You got it. Well, okay. And the problem is that the excitement that you have around pizza day and the this break in the normalcy of your lunches every single day is just decimated. When you actually eat the kosher pizza, because kosher pizza what? tastes like cardboard. Whoa, 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 whoa. So I am going to give my anti-shkoyach on this 13th bar mitzvah episode of Treif to kosher pizza. You're telling me there's no good kosher pizza in the entire city of Montreal? I have never had good kosher pizza, and I don't know why you're making this about Montreal. Okay, because I did not grow up in Montreal, as you know. I Clearly grew up not. in Thornhill, Ontario. Yeah. And not only was there good kosher pizza there, there were several kosher pizza places that competed with each other and every week on wednesday there would be pizza day and we get the pizza from my zadie's pizza and it was delicious and your zadie's pizza or my zadie's pizza the name of the place is called my zadie's pizza. all right the people want to know david in fact the pizza was so good that my experience with pizza day once a week was actually not a positive one because they would only allow you to buy in advance two slices per week as a maximum and children <laughs> like myself who wanted three slices i thought you were allergic well, that's a different. We'll get to that. All right. First of all, I don't want to get into your 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 trials and tribulations of bargaining for pizza. But the point of the story is that kosher pizza, for whatever reason, tastes like a piece of cardboard with a piece of cheese on top of it that doesn't taste like cheese. So Sam, I urge you to add the caveat that you are speaking in reference to Montreal kosher pizza. No, but but listen, I the, the for me the problem is expectation, right? You're so excited. Pizza is such a good thing. So many people enjoy eating pizza. So you're expecting all the good things associated with eating pizza, right? And, and then you have it, and it's terrible. Also, can can you explain to me how you were eating many slices of pizza while having a lactose allergy? Oh, yeah. It's not that interesting. When I was younger, I was allergic to dairy, and then eventually I thought I grew out of it, so I started eating pizza. So you got sick every time you ate it but didn't know? 
or you just actually just didn't feel the effects at this at this growth spurt in your yeah life? i just didn't feel the effects of it for a long time okay. but for the majority of my experience in elementary school i was bringing in cold non-dairy pizza that my mom was kind enough to prepare for me on that day and resenting everyone who was eating the fresh yeah. pizza until i was able to indulge as well and i can say that the my Zadie's pizza that they got was delicious again i don't believe you mostly because this is a toronto-based anecdote um i think the only way to resolve this question is if you come to thornhill and try some my Zadie's pizza one day, David, one day. It's open. If the owners of My Zadie's Pizza are listening, we also would take uh, a donation of some kind. A donation? Like a, if, if they email, uh, like FedEx it to us. Sam. Or sorry, Canada posted it to us. We are firm supporters of Canada Post and their strong union. I think you should try it. Okay, and I'll bring you to Pizza Pizza on Dakari, and you'll understand why I felt the need to give this 13th Shkoyach, this 13th anti-Shkoyach to Kosher Pizza. Sam, I bet the Pizza Pizza tons of times. Tons. Yeah, every time I visit my family here, we go there. Huh. And do you not agree with my conclusion? Yeah, it's nowhere near as good as my Zadie's Pizza. Uh, see, the problem is you just turned this into a Montreal-Toronto thing. Classic Toronto move, David. I mean, I've just had delicious kosher pizza, and it seems like you haven't shared the experience. I don't believe you. Well, again, only one way to find out. Mm, probably several, but we'll agree to disagree. But, so wait, will you try the my Zadie's <laughs> Pizza? Um, I'll consider it. Okay. So we're joined on the line by Dave Zirin. Dave is an editor at The Nation magazine, author of several books, and host of the recently reformatted podcast, Edge of Sports. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And I think it's important to put this out on the public record. Thanks for joining us a second time, because we managed to uh, have some technical problems the first time around. Yeah, it happens. I'm sorry I couldn't do the redo with you guys. That was uh, not great form on my part, but I was leaving town at the time, actually, to... Uh, to go to Brazil to keep doing stuff with the World Cup and the Olympics down there. We're grateful that you're back on. Oh, no, happy to be here. Just a lot of uh, displacement and militarization happening in Brazil right now in the lead-up to the Olympics. And a lot of that militarization is being underwritten by Israeli aerospace and defense companies. So there's an interesting little bridge to everything we're talking about here. It's become big business in Israel is exporting crowd control techniques for mega events like the World Cup, the Olympics, or big events like the World Economic Forum. You know, they sell the idea that they're global experts in security and they have the best drones money can buy. Are there any companies in particular that you like to shout out on the show? Yeah, there are two. One is called Elbit, is, is the big one, Elbit Systems. And the other one is called Raphael. And Elbit's earnings are up dramatically because it's drone airplanes. Uh, Brazil brought a t- bought a ton of them for the World Cup and the Olympics, and it sent their stocks up through the roof. And uh, what, what, it, what it comes down to is, you know, it's, it's like exporting Gaza, other parts of the world. So you've got part of the world that's fighting to free Gaza, to tear down the walls and actually not have um, over a million people consigned to living in a filthy open-air prison and then you've got you know, the Israeli government, which is exporting Gaza 
Yeah, and like we've seen that here. I know on this side of the border, a lot of the police forces here have been trained on joint programs uh, with the Israeli military. And I know in the United States, a lot of police forces have been militarized through similar programs too. Yeah, and it's 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 just yet another example of one of those disturbing things where, I mean, I, I mean, I'm Jewish. Um, I know you guys are Jewish, and it's like the idea that that Israel's exporting this is, you know, to me, is just awful. And there's a lot of criticism of it in the Israeli press. Yeah, when you try to raise those same criticisms in the United States, like the backlash is so intense that you know, I, I know for a fact that it discourages people from from raising it consistently because it really does take a thick skin to do it. It's, it's just an absolute guarantee that you're going to be you know, subject to some serious bombardment. Just to move things a little bit from a larger scale to a smaller scale, um, we called you to talk a little bit about David Blatt, who was the coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers and who was recently fired. Um, I was wondering if you give a little backstory on Mr. Blatt and why the Jewish press is a little unhappy that he got fired. No, I mean, I mean, first and foremost, David Blatt is one of the most successful international coaches of his generation. His record speaks for itself. Uh, he'd never coached in the NBA. Um, one of his major coaching stops was in Israel, and he has, in interviews, talked about how uh, when he went to Israel, he says it made me more Jewish and made me more Zionist. He was served in the IDF, the uh, Israeli Defense Forces. He was somebody who brags about being on a first-name basis with Benjamin Netanyahu, calls him Bibi. And he also is someone who, right before he started coaching with the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2014, made comments in just absolute, total cheerleading support of Operation Calf-led where the Israeli military, I mean, they killed, what, 1,400 um, in the Gaza Strip, just indiscriminate bombing, just an ugly human rights violation, called out as such by the United Nations, called out as such by Amnesty International. And David Blatt praised it, saying he hoped it would make the region quiet for a while. That's how he put it. Uh, so that's David Blatt. He's entitled to his opinion. But at the time, I was really struck by how little backlash he got for saying this. I mean, he also criticized the United States. Uh, in the same interview, for not being as supportive uh, of Israel as he would like to see. I mean, you just you put this in any other context of a coach uh, praising what's been internationally decried as a war crime, uh, killing kids, and then blaming the United States for not supporting it more heartily. I mean, I think there might be a little bit of backlash, but Dwight Howard got a much bigger backlash for just tweeting the words "free Palestine" than David Blatt got. So that's the big picture, David Blatt. So despite how defensible it is on every conceivable level, I think, that David Blatt was fired. You had a two-pronged backlash against what Cleveland did. The first was an utterly unhinged, hysterical backlash by other NBA coaches who were just, like, shocked and appalled that one of their own would be fired with the best record. But on the other side of it, you also had several articles, which I'm sure you guys have seen. I think that's why you guys asked me to be on the show here, that talked about how LeBron James is now despised in Israel and people comparing him to Hamas and all of these just like terrible things that people are saying about LeBron James. Now, why are they saying it about him? Because they assume he cost David Blatt his job. And I don't mourn for David Blatt. I think he was a horrible fit for Cleveland. Um, and I certainly don't mourn for the people who are mourning for David Blatt because I think that their reaction has been way over the top and, has no place in kind of like a reasonable discussion about this issue. And just one of the reasons I guess I'm a little sensitive about it is like, sure enough, yeah, like I've been bombarded, as we talked about at the beginning, 
with people calling me uh, anti-Semite, self-hating Jew. Uh, I mean, actually, my, my, the, I'm happy to share this, but the lives of my family were threatened on social media, um, and all because taking a critical view of what David Blatt said about the Israeli state. So this does not lend itself, uh, I guess I'm trying to get across, to like rational discussion. Just wanted to build off that last point a little bit, or the second to last point. There was a piece in Tablet, which I don't know if you have frequented yeah. their website, but there, the headline was, Where Does David Blatt End and Jewishness Begin? And the, the article was bookended by an account of two people who brought Palestinian flags to a Cavs game after Blatt got fired. And we talked about this on the last time that you were on the show, but there's certain kinds of activism that are encouraged in the NBA, particularly connections to Israel in certain respects, like the trip this summer. And I'm wondering the mm -hmm. different response that different kinds of activisms get in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, it's bizarre. I mean, there, there's sanctioned activism and there's unsanctioned activism. And I mean, certainly bringing a Palestinian flag to a game is, is something very daring. And, you know, I support their right to do that. I mean, one of the things about the article you mentioned that was disturbing to me is that there was, it talked about it in terms of like competing identities as if it's Jewish identity versus Palestinian identity. And that to me is a very, very offensive formulation because it, it obviously it implies, more than implies, it states explicitly that Jewish identity is antithetical to Palestinian identity. And to be Jewish is to be on the other side of the barricades as Palestinian. In other words, what it's doing is conflating a religion that's been around for over 5,000 years with a settler state that's been around for less than seven decades. And when you have that, that kind of conflation is all too common in our media. It's all too common in our discourse. And one of the things that it's meant to do is to shut down opponents of what Israel does. And so, the, I mean, that was the thing. The, the writer of that piece is somebody I respect a great deal. I'm not in any way making an effort to decry him or, or say anything bad about him. I, I just think that the, the formulation of that piece was unfortunate. Well, Dave, a lot of the a lot of the activism that's challenging the Israeli state, especially in the context of BDS, the push for boycotts, divestments, and sanctions from the state of Israel, draws a lot of parallels to the movement of BDS against a South African state under apartheid. And I was wondering what you saw as the parallels or differences, specifically here in the NBA, like what the league's relationship in supporting or opposing the apartheid regime is to their uh, opposition or support for the state of Israel. I mean, the parallels are very, very strong, and they've been stated as such by South African activists, uh, BDS activists. I mean, the person who was the foremost uh, figure in the South African sports boycott movement was Dennis Brutus, uh, who was in prison with Nelson Mandela and who helped organize and lead uh, the boycotts that took place. Um, that he started an organization called Sandrock, which was the South African Non-Racialized Olympic Committee. And it was incredibly, incredibly powerful and instrumental in getting South Africa banned from the Olympics. And so this was Dennis Brutus, and Dennis Brutus was a supporter of all efforts uh, to isolate Israel through sports and use sports as a platform as a way to say, wait a minute, what's happening here is, is absolutely not okay. And in particular, sports like FIFA had stuff in its guidelines about opposing apartheid in sports and not working with apartheid countries. And it's all very sort of 
antiseptic language, but it raises that question as to what are we really talking about here? I mean, is, is there another set of rules for, for Israel and should Israel be sanctioned? And, and they talked about that at the last FIFA World Congress about the idea of sanctioning Israel because, I mean, because of the blockading, the imprisoning, the destruction of aspects of the Palestinian national team. And one of the things, though, that it sprouted are organizations like Red Card Israeli Apartheid. So when Israel travels to Europe, they're protested. But the, the biggest difference, I think, between Israeli sports and South African sports in this context is the very tight connections that do exist between the NBA and Israel. The South African boycotts, I mean, they largely affected international sports and then uh, cricket and rugby. Uh, so <laughs> the NBA is something different. You know, the NBA is very, I know it's a global sport, but you know, the NBA is very USA. And the connections between, I mean, Israel, as you guys have talked about on your podcast, between Israel and the NBA are very tight. And there were a lot of protests in 2014 before the season began in several cities of Palestinian solidarity activists because just in the, in the aftermath, in the very aftermath of the bombing of Gaza and the death of all those kids, you had Israeli basketball teams touring the United States. And there were significant protests against that. So the parallels are real. It's one of those things where it's like the history isn't repeating itself, but it is rhyming. And it is worth uh, looking at the lessons of South Africa, mainly which is that, I mean, sports and I think all cultural entities are really fair game when we talk about international boycotting because, I mean, it's about raising awareness. And there are few things that speak to our human commonality, quite like sports or music or art. And, and, and that's why I think people are, are really seizing on this, part, largely because they don't get a response when they try through official channels. Yeah, I mean, Jesus. I mean, so if you said to like a uh, 18 year old who's horrified by what they see on the Gaza Strip, and you say to them, you could either be part of the BDS movement or you could write to your congressperson, what is going to get more results in this Congress and in this country? I, mean, I think the answer kind of speaks for itself. That is as good as a place to end as any. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, no worries. Have a good one, fellas. So at the end of the show, we like to do a recommendation. We often bring someone on to talk briefly about the thing that they're working on. This week's recommendation goes to Jewish Voice for Peace, as well as Jews Say No, both chapters based in New York, who put together a parody action uh, about a week or two ago that revolved around spoofing the New York Times and putting out a four-page print insert, as well as a website that mocked the New York Times's uncritical reporting on Palestine. Yeah, and so we got in touch with someone from the Jewish Voice for Peace chapter to tell us a bit about the action in more detail. We're now joined by Beth Miller, who is with the New York City chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. She received her master's in human rights law from SOAS at the University of London and works in child rights. So Beth, could you talk a bit about the motivations that folks had to do this action and a bit about what the consequences have been? Sure, absolutely. So the way that this initially was sparked is that this was a joint action. Like you said, I'm with the New York City chapter of Jewish Force for Peace, but this was a joint action between our chapter and the Jews Say No New York City chapter as well, made up of a group of people who are generally very dissatisfied with the way the New York Times covers Israel and Palestine. Um, what we find in general is that there's often a lack of historical context in the way that they discuss the issues specifically around Palestine and Palestinians. And that was kind of something that we'd, we'd always thought about and kind of had 
worked around and developed actions around in the past, but specifically uh, last fall during this, this rise in violence. We were all very upset. You know, the New York Times is one of the leading news sources in the U.S. and in the world. And, you know, what was happening was that that context was just lacking. There was no discussion of Israeli incitement and violence. There was no discussion of settler violence, Israeli forces who were being violent against Palestinians. There was no discussion of kind of discriminatory anti-democratic laws that target Palestinians in Israel or the fact that there is a brutal, illegal military occupation of the West Bank, which is a huge point that needs to be mentioned kind of in any article. Context is critical when it comes to these issues. So that was something that really sparked our attention. And so we decided that we wanted to find a way to address that in a creative way. And so we ended up coming to this idea of creating the paper that we wanted to see. Could you talk a little bit about some of the responses you got and what your feelings were about them? Sure. Well, I I have to say that the responses we've got have been overwhelming. It made a big impression on a lot of people. And overall, I think the the response has been positive from people, of course, who are already kind of questioning of the way the media portrays these issues. From them, the, the response has been huge and it's been very positive. But what we really wanted to do was spark a conversation. And so we've had some people who were very upset and felt like what we were pointing out was unfair. And then they would say why. And, you know, of course, we disagree with them. But that's what we wanted. We want that conversation to happen, to be sparked. And that's kind of the way it's been. Um, One other thing that I think has been very moving about the response of the action has been that a lot of people kind of believed it for a moment because of their hope, right? It was that they had, they were hoping to see this happen one day, that the New York Times would start to question the way it had been covering Israel and Palestine. And so when they saw it, they wanted to believe it. And I think that speaks to the fact that people are hungry for real news and they know that they're not getting it and they're, they want it. And so I think that's been kind of a very powerful response we've been getting. So if people want to uh, follow up in future activities or just follow uh, Jewish Voice for Peace in general, how can they go about doing that? So um, Jewish Voice for Peace, we actually, one thing I also should say is we had a website that was up that was the parody paper, which was taken down, but we've put it back up with a few adjustments. And so one thing people can do is they can see the paper at itsnotthetimes.com. And if they want to learn more about Jewish Voice for Peace, they can visit us at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash jvpny. And they can also follow us on Twitter at jvplivenyc. Um, and the same, if they're also interested in learning more about Jews Say No, which is the other group that was a part of this action, they can reach out to JDP and we can connect them that way as well. Great. Well, thanks for talking with us. Thank you so much. So that's our Bar Mitzvah episode. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoy the show or you just like me and David and want to help us out, you could give the show a rating in iTunes as well as a nice little review, one or two sentences. There's a how-to guide on our Facebook page, but generally it involves signing into iTunes and clicking our podcast and writing a review. We've been told by the higher-ups that a positive rating on iTunes helps the sorcerer's algorithm at Apple. So please go ahead and do that. Or if you don't know how to do it, ask a friend or a relative how to give a positive rating on iTunes. See you in two Wednesdays. Trafe Podcast is Sam Beck and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT, which is located in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganegahaga territory. Thank you to our director of design, Claire Hertig, to Sax Syndrome for the music, and to our social media director, Kira Page. If you're interested in listening to our bi-weekly podcast, you can find the show on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F, 
or send comments and suggestions to tradepodcast at gmail.com. I think Rod Crew ever actually converted, but he wore a high every time he stepped up to the plate. I mean, I'm going to look this up right now. Rod Carew, Time Magazine. I'm, I'm doing this, like, as we're talking. Yep, there it is. You should look this up while we're talking, because I'm looking at it right now, and this high is, like, as big as the crosses that Carly Fiorino wears. you got to look at it, man. It's high. It's, it's beautiful, too. You don't usually see skies with this much swag.